HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Learn more at forevercheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, we rethink surplus by exploring how innovators are promoting sharing mindsets and responding to excess in creative ways. The whole life cycle of food would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter behind China and the United States if it were a country. You know, in the age of COVID, where a lot of those institutional processors did grind to a halt and a lot of farms had to dump milk in Pennsylvania, even while supermarket cases were, were bare, the organic market stayed strong. They source all of these ingredients, they do all of this work, and then they just boil it for a few minutes and then they throw it away. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Good evening and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food systems and policy and how they impact all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting on Heritage Radio Network. Some of you may remember the recent and widely circulated New York Times expose by op-ed columnist Nicholas Kristof about the horrific conditions and extreme animal suffering at Costco's chicken farm. The hidden video investigation behind the piece was led by Mercy for Animals, a global animal welfare organization. I'm so pleased that its president, Leah Garces, is joining the show today to provide more details on both the investigation, including why the focus on Costco and what specifically they're asking the company to do, as well as MFA's broader animal rights work. Um, Okay, so before we get into your recent investigation of Costco, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, a little bit more about your background and the work that you do at Mercy for Animals? Oh, I'd be glad to. Uh, So... Mercy for Animals is a global organization, and our mission is to construct a compassionate food system, and we want to end commercial animal agriculture uh, because of the impact it has on animals and people, the planet, the environment. Uh, My personal background is I've been working for over 20 years in this sort of work, animal protection broadly, but then also ending factory farming and creating a more compassionate and sustainable food system. Uh, And I'm really glad to be here and talk to you about our work. When you say ending, um, you know, commercial animal production, does that mean kind of any and all? Or is that really more specifically focused on the industrial animal 
our big focus is yeah our big focus is factory farming so as we see it it does not it is not able to take individuals into account and i mean both farmers communities people living around factory farming and also individual animals chickens pigs cows etc um how does mfa differentiate itself from other organizations in this space like primarily i'm thinking PETA. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Good question. So our organization only focuses on farmed animals. So PETA works on all animals. Um, And we broadly take an approach in which we want to not just point out what's wrong, but construct what is right. So we are actively working with farmers, for example, which I hope we talk about later, Mm -hmm. getting them to transition away from factory farming towards plant-based. Or we are actively working with companies to get them to reduce suffering of the animals trapped in the food system or increase the number of plant-based options. So we're not just pointing out what's wrong, but we're actively, constructively working on creating what's right. And trying to meet your the stakeholders sort of where they're at. Definitely. Um, definitely yeah. engaging and trying to sit down with those we don't agree with. Instead of just kind of pointing a finger. And this was a bit of a, um, a learning for you, right? In terms of like professionally. And, oh and my gosh, you- yes. <laughs> Can you tell that us is that? the understatement of the year, Jenna. <laughs> so, I mean, I started like many advocates started very angry, very upset when I learned how animals are treated in our food system. Um, you know, I see them each as individuals, pigs, chickens, cows. They have, you know, they're just like our dogs and cats, but somehow they've ended up terribly trapped in our food system, treated like sacks of potatoes rather than the sentient beings they are. And this can make you really angry. It can make you feel yourself sort of despair um, for them and not sure how to deal with it. And so my first reaction is, well, I just have to fight this. I have to be angry. I have to blame people. Uh, And I especially blamed farmers themselves. Uh, And I thought, who in the world would sign up to do work like this? Why would you want to be a factory farmer? They must just be evil people. And that went on for a long time until I actually met one of these farmers. And his name was Craig Watts. And I found myself invited through a journalist to meet with him. And I found myself in his living room, sitting down to talk to him. And I listened to his story. And his story was actually one of despair himself, where he had wanted to stay on the land. And he had signed up to be this factory farmer, this chicken factory farmer, because it had been sold to him much different than what it actually was. And he ended up uh, having to take a half a million dollar loan out to build chicken houses that then the companies dropped off the chickens, of which he had no control over the types of chickens or the conditions or the standards. And then the chicken company picks them up at the end. And it went okay at first, but you you know lock 30,000 chickens in a warehouse pretty soon, they're getting sick and there's problems and you don't mm-hmm. get paid for dead and sick birds he had this giant mortgage like payment he had to pay every month and he started to fall behind and he realized he'd made a really big mistake. But now the only way to pay off this loan was to keep getting chickens, to keep doing this over and over again. And 22 years later, he was feeling very low and this is where I found him. And I realized that I had really missed a beat that I should have been thinking about the root of the problem more. Why had a person like this signed up to 
do such a horrible job, which he found later he couldn't get out of. And he was all but an indentured servant. And it turns out that most of the people living in these communities have few options. There's few opportunities, few other ways to make a living and stay on this land. And this was just the only choice. So the answer is we have to provide different choices, more choices, and protect those communities and help those communities thrive again. So that's that's how my approach to this problem really started to shift and change. That was seven years ago. And I've brought that approach to Mercy for Animals. And while our work stands, you know, we, we want a plant-based world. There's no two ways about that. We believe we don't need to eat animals. And in fact, they don't want to be eaten. So let's try to find... <laughs> they would prefer not to be eaten. They would prefer not to be eaten, not yeah. to be locked in farms. They would prefer to just live their life like we do. And... So, but that's not easy. And we have to find, come to the table with solutions, not just point out and wag our fingers what's wrong. You, when we talk about animal welfare, the concept of sentience is evoked and, and you mentioned it um, a little bit earlier. What does this term really refer to? And is this concept primarily, does it primarily revolve around pain receptors? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, initially, animal welfare science was really about pain and measuring pain. Can animals even feel pain, right? So we used to think fish couldn't feel pain. Oh, who cares? Like, we just put a hook in their mouth. They can't feel that. It's fine. That's, yeah, that's my next question, but go yeah. ahead. <laughs> right. And they can. And, and yeah. so science really initially was trying, was realizing that farmed animals, the animals we eat, feel pain. And there was unfortunately horrible ways to prove this. And one example was that broiler chickens, these are the chickens that are raised for meat, were given a preference test and they were given feed that had essentially like ibuprofen, like Advil, pain mm-hmm. relief in the feed and then pe- and then food that didn't. And the, f- and the food that did, they showed total preference for the food. It was exact same food, except one of them had pain relief. And this was the, one of the first like keystone pieces of evidence that these animals we're living in pain all of the time, just by the nature of how fast they grow and their kind of skeletal and muscular framework that is genetically driven into them because we want really big birds that grow really fast and efficiently. And so those are the kinds of studies that were done to say, oh, they're in pain. They can mm-hmm. feel pain. Uh, this pref- And this preference testing shows this. But as our understanding evolved, we started to also realize if you can feel pain, you can probably feel joy. You can all probably feel pleasure and happiness. Mm -hmm. We had this kind of, oh, of course, you you don't just feel one. You feel all of these emotions. You have the capacity for, you know, pleasure too. And Mm -hmm. so then there was more science done to show these animals, like, for example, hens will show deep preference for laying their eggs in a nest or pigs will show deep preference for building an elaborate nest to birth their babies in. And it was, you know, a real evolution in animal welfare science and showing that sentience is not just about pain and fear, but it's also about joy and pleasure and that we have, they need both. They need and want both. And so sentient animals like our dogs and cats can feel both sides of that coin of sentience. So sentience is really a coin that has these two sides. You are so incredibly passionate about this work. Maybe your upbringing, your background has inspired you so deeply to to be involved in the animal 
welfare space? You know, it's, it's hard. You can kind of create a narrative that makes sense retrospectively. Mm -hmm. The best one I can, you know, retrospectively give is that I grew up in partially in the swamps of Florida in our backyard. We had, I had a lot of freedom to explore and be outside and I had wild ducks in my backyard and um, that went up to a, a, a state park and they were Muscovy ducks and they would lay eggs and they make nests in my mother's like prized flower beds, these impatients that were kind of very tall and no one was allowed to touch them except the ducks. The ducks were allowed to. And so through like for years of my childhood, I, I had this front row seat to the inside lives of ducks and could see firsthand that they were just like us. They had families, they had battles, they had joy, they had pride, they had love affairs, they had all the things, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I didn't question that growing up. And it was only, you know, I, I, I had a understanding that this didn't stop this, this, uh, this way with animals didn't stop with our dogs and cats who I had, I had great, I was very close to my dogs growing up, but it extended of course to the other animals. Why wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. And then it was when I was about 15 that I was watching a kind of eat meat, your meat documentary. And I can't even remember. It was on PBS that it, that it was that I realized what was going on in our food system. And before that, I had never thought about it. I had never even thought about the animals on our plate and how they were just like the ducks that were in my backyard or the dog that literally slept in the bed with me. And this made me vegetarian initially. And I wanted to be a vet. Uh, And it, it was through my education and I did a zoology degree. And my mentor at the time said, Leah, you don't want to be a vet. Vets are great, but they're plumbers. They fix animals once they're broken. Mm -hmm. And you want to get to the root of the problem because I was very curious about getting to the root of the root of the roots. So then I went on to do a master's degree in England. And that's where I was really introduced to a whole world of farmed animal protection in a professional sense that was developing in the United Kingdom. This was over 20 years ago. In 1999, I went to do my master's there. And my first job out of the gate was in the UK working in farmed animal protection at Compassionate World Farming. And I really never looked back since. And a lot of these, um, you know, in terms of like the amount of money, because I always like to follow the money um, Mm -hmm. that's given to animal charities, not a lot goes to farmed animal organizations, right? It is a minuscule amount of money in terms of, you know, the, how much money goes to the animals and the environment. We, and, and that is a very small amount and I don't know them off of the top of my head. I should, but then the amount that goes to farmed animals is is less than 0.1%. It's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. And Why do you think that is? Is it just because we are so disconnected from our food or, you know, our food supply, basically? Well, I think that dogs and cats are in our homes and we love them and they're part of our families. And unfortunately, farmed animals do not enjoy that same status and they are removed. Just like I was, until I was 15 years old, had never made the connection between an individual sentient being and the chicken nugget I was eating. I'd never, it's purposely kept, you know, very, very intentionally kept at arm's length behind closed doors so that we don't, if we had that connection, if we were thinking about that with every bite, we would never have another bite of animal again. Mm -hmm. And that is intentional 
and ca- I mean, we cannot, you can't walk down, you know, you can't drive anywhere and see a factory farm. You can't see those animals. You can't just walk up to a factory farm and say, Hey, can I see what's going on behind those <laughs> warehouses? No, you They're can't. They're like, no, <laughs> no absolutely not. You, if you try to, first of all, there's a biosecurity sign that you'll be met with that says private property, no entry, biosecurity zone. You will think you're entering some kind of nuclear waste site because yeah. that's the kind of level of of security there is. And if you are allowed to enter, you have to wear full biosecurity gear. You have to wear a hairnet, you have to wear gloves, you have to wear a, um, booties on your feet, and you have to wear a suit as if you're entering something super dangerous because it is super dangerous. You can get sick. And I've been sick from entering a factory farm. I've gotten Campylobacter poisoning, for example, and I was very sick, very sick. It is a it is a dangerous place, uh, not least if you're a chicken or a pig or a cow. Um, what is that? What like? Whoa! <laughs> I never heard of that. Can you I, that's a, maybe a bit of an aside, but I have to ask. Campylobacter. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, actually, it's very common if you eat chicken. Um, and so Campylobacter is a bacteria that is in the gut of chickens. And there's one particular species called Campylobacter jejuni, which makes humans very sick. And uh, dysentery is, can result in the worst case of dysentery, which is, I'm sorry to be gross, but I'm going to just say it, bloody diarrhea. Yeah. It is quite horrible and can kill you in some cases if it's not treated or if you don't have access to medicine um, or antibiotics. And usually people get it because... As the chickens are slaughtered, there is inevitably some gut spillage and basically feces gets onto the actual chicken meat and then it's in the packaging and even it like it's a bacteria. So if it's a tiny little fraction of a splatter, then you eat that chicken if it's not been uh, cooked or dipped. So in our country, in the United States, they dip the chicken actually in chlorine to get rid of this potential risk. And that's very typical in the, in the UK, they don't do that. And chlorine dipping your chicken in chlorine is illegal in the EU, for example, but in this country we do, um, dip. Yum. Yeah. (laughs) And then we send it off, but still people are getting sick from it. And it actually is one of the greatest causes of food poisoning in the United States. And that was done in a university of Florida, um, study, uh, through their epidemiology department that tracked the highest, um, the food that we eat and what causes the most amount of food um, poisoning. And chicken was one of the highest. And it was from Campylobacter uh, poisoning uh, along with salmonella. And Mm. I did not get it from eating chicken. I got it hanging out with live chickens and I was not wearing a mask and something must have happened. Next time I wore a mask, every other time I've worn, I've worn a mask yeah. since I've, I've been in there, but I was extremely sick. Um, I lost like uh, a lot of weight really quickly, um, had to get on antibiotics. Um, and I, yeah, was lucky that I have access, you know, quickly to a doctor. I knew what it I pretty much guessed what it was. Um, but, you know, you think... That's why you have to wear a biosecurity suit if you go into a factory farm, not least because of the diseases they're worried you'll bring in there on your feet. Let's say you step on wild bird poop and you bring Mm -hmm. it in and that wild bird has something, then you give it to the chickens and boom, all those 30,000 chickens because they're so close together. Yeah. Um, You know, like you think about coronavirus, like we're all standing and six feet apart while these chickens are, you know, wing to wing and they 
can one of them gets sick, they're all sick. And so they're trying to keep this as uh, pristine an environment as possible in terms of bugs. It's impossible, of course, and hundreds die each flock. Um, but it's it's a it's a very strange system that is um, not you know something that we can just walk up to and see any day. Um, and yeah, treated more like a biohazard waste site than our food system. To what extent does MFA focus on chicken welfare, and is this like the primary focus of the organization? Well. Um, we are working to end factory farming and 90% of factory farming in terms of individuals is our meat chickens, not even laying hens for eggs. So in that sense, yes, we are focused a lot on chickens because they are the most affected by our food system as terms of land animals. Fish are much higher numbers individually. Um, we, you know, as a whole are working to protect all farmed animals. So we are working on uh, everything from dairy, dairy cows to uh, to pigs, mother pigs, um, but our big foot and laying hens, of course, getting rid of um, cages and crates. But because ninety percent, so nine billion f- uh, chickens raised just for meat, not laying hens for eggs, are wow. raised and slaughtered every single year in the United States alone. They constitute the largest number of animals affected by our food system, so they become a focus automatically if we're thinking, you know, how do we affect change at the largest level? And when we're, when we're talking about um, chickens farmed in an industrial way, what percentage of the, like, 90% are farmed in these horrible conditions? Is it, like, one percent. I'm getting my chicken from the farmers market. Um, oh, one. Per, you mean what? How many are are not factory yes. farmed? Yeah, that's a better way to phrase it. Yes, less than zero point one percent. It's minus. It's it's a wow. it's it's negligible, and that's a big concern because I think a lot of there's a really tricky labeling that is preying on a consumer who wants to imagine that a chicken is roaming the pasture and has one bad day, mm-hmm. but the reality is that is almost never happening unless you are purchasing almost direct from a farm that you know the farmer you know exactly you've been there you can see the pictures are on the website and you can call them up and go you know kind of portlandia style like who are those chickens friends um then it's very unlikely <laughs> so chicken's one, middle name again yeah I exactly um, i don't know if you've seen that portlandia episode but that's burned in my mind. <laughs> okay, this is a good segue to talk about your recent work um, that was featured in New York Times op-ed writer Nicholas Kristoff's column, The Ugly Secrets Behind the Costco Chicken. The headline reads, an investigator went undercover and brought back disturbing video from a farm growing those famous birds. And um, Mercy for Animals was in fact that investigator, right? That's correct. Yes. So we uh, sent an investigator each day uh, who went to work um, and document the conditions on a Costco, um, a Costco, a farm that supplies chickens to Costco. Um, and they, it's hidden camera footage and it reveals extreme animal suffering. Um, the chickens were like most chickens in the United States are bred to grow so large, so fast that their legs could not support their own weight. Uh, they have organ failure and you can see this, there's birds flipping over, who have flipped over and are on their backs and can't get up. This is called flip over syndrome from essentially heart failure. Um, there's hundreds of thousands of birds that are crammed into these filthy 
noisy sheds, um, you know, feces on the floor, forced to live in their own waste. There's injured and ill chicks unable to walk. So there's like cross beaks and uh, mangled wings and just countless birds that are have open wounds and burns from on their skin from laying on this ammonia laden litter um, and injuries resulting from that. So it's pretty horrific. Uh, Costco has a, a reputation of quality and in mm-hmm. particular, they use um, rotisserie chicken as a kind of getting people in the door so they'll buy a TV, you know, so they're using rotisserie yeah. chicken at this very low price of four ninety nine, and they're famous for it. And there's like Facebook sites on it who have now gone against it, by the way, because mm. they're so appalled. Um, and they're using sentient beings as a lost leader to, and I, that's not okay. And they're acting like the quality is high. They've even, um, sent, so we've had many, many supporters write to them and say, and, and complain. And they respond with something like saying, we have the highest animal welfare standards. They literally say the highest mm-hmm. in their response. And it's, 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 a, it's absolutely incorrect that it not by a long shot or they have the highest animal welfare standards. So we are, um, you know, hoping that they see the light. I think that they do care about quality. They do, they have led before. So at Cage Free Eggs, they're one of the companies that yeah. has led on Cage Free Eggs. Um, this is a big ask. And we know that it's very expensive to change uh, chicken, but we don't think it should be taken out on the animals. And Costco has many ways that it could spread the costs out. And, and you know, sentient beings are not the way to do it. Is there anything different about the way that these birds are grown and, and processed um, than other contract growers? And does does Costco own their own? Um, you know, do they use Costco grower, growers themselves, like, directly? Or do they white label from, like, a Purdue? Yeah, great question. And it's one of the reasons we wanted to work with Costco specifically. They actually set up um, a whole totally vertically integrated system for themselves to supply directly to them through um, Lincoln Premium Poultry. So um, this is where this system has been set up to supply only to them by they set it up. So they the, the slaughterhouse has been created. The slaughterhouse has been created by them. Um, it's run by Lincoln Premium Poultry, but it's done to Costco specifications. There's no middleman to negotiate with. Is the hmm. point I'm making here? And they've invested already, um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to build their own supply chain for chickens. So well over half a billion dollars already. So they've perp- they, and they purposely sell rotisserie chicken at a low cost to bring customers in the store. So they're in control of the standards on this farm. They're in control of the slaughterhouse standards and they're, they're in control of the supply. So there's really no excuses. They have the ability to make a difference. They're the only grocery chain that is doing this. They're the only grocery chain that set up their own supply chain uh, and have complete vertical integration from shelf to, to slaughterhouse to farm. And they have a lot more control. So they don't, have to, they don't have to negotiate with a Purdue or a Tyson or any of the big chicken um, producers. They are the chicken producer. They are facilitating that directly. Okay. So that's like a big reason why you um, have kind of selected this particular yep. company to, to yes. try and work with. I mean, I, and I think the article does a good job. You know, Christoph writes that 
Costco in many ways exemplifies capitalism that works, especially in terms of pay and benefits, you know, that are profitable and inhumane. But then he writes, unless you're a chicken. (laughs) Yeah. And and that's true. But okay, so the fact that they're very well positioned to be able to actually make a difference in this space in in a very direct, tangible way, that makes a lot of sense. Um, how, so you, I mean, has there just been initial just pushback and like PR spin around it or have you kind of started talking to them? Like, have they, have they been willing to come to the table? Because again, like they do a lot of things that are right. So, um, yeah. where are they with Yeah. This? So initially Costco responded to our undercover video with a shrug. They were like, oh. <laughs> yeah, no, actually, they the quote in the New York Times, which you can see, is saying, they said, oh, this is normal and uneventful. Well, yeah, that is yes. a horrible thing to say, because it yeah. is not uneventful for the millions of animals in their care. Right. And normal assumes some kind of level of acceptability. And I don't think that the public or the Costco customer thinks that what they see in this footage is acceptable. The birds are grown very large, so fast, they can't walk, they have open wounds, burns from ammonia, overcrowding. There's nothing normal or uneventful about it. And furthermore, it's all preventable. So Costco really should be using its power to prevent and reduce the suffering of these powerless sentient beings by committing to some basic improvements that over 200 other companies like Burger King and Subway have already committed to. That's what we're asking them to do. Yeah. Um, it is, it's so hard though, because I think that consumers look at, you know, they they look at this video and it's like objectively horrifying. Right. But then when they actually go to the like check, checkout, a lot of consumers, and we see this across every industry, every part of the food system, I would say like, you know, it's a, it's an uphill battle to get them to want to pay more because inevitably is that what's going to have to happen? Like the, the, the cost will be passed on to the consumer. Well, it's really up to Costco. I mean, Costco could spread out the TV and Costco's case, I'm sorry, they could spread out the cost to a TV or to mm-hmm. a roll of toilet paper or whatever. You know, if they really want to keep, if they're committed to keeping the price at $4.99, they have a million other items in their store that they could spread the cost out to. Yeah. Um, and they've chosen to artificially keep their rotisserie chicken low. And we know that in general, there is an artificial... Um, keeping of prices of chickens low. And we know that because the companies are getting sued right now for price fixing. And mm. we know that the what the price we see at the grocery store or anywhere else is not a true reflection of how much this actually costs. I mean, mm. there's the, the cost to the environment, for example, and the cleanup that has to happen that we pay as taxpayers, that the cost to our health in terms of the impact on lung and um, water pollution or air and water pollution. So those are like general external costs that we're paying all the time. Uh, And, you know, and I think that the public are starting to change on this. And, you know, while Costco was saying this is normal and uneventful, the public saw this as abhorrent and unacceptable. And we, that article really, I think was a big wake up call. And, we're happy it's not just, you know, it, it's targeting Costco for sure, but this is how the whole industry treats chickens. And Costco could be a leader. Costco has the capacity within its own supply chain, but we hope everyone does. And it was the most emailed story 
on Sunday and Monday. And mind wow. you, this was Super Bowl Sunday. Wow. <laughs> and that's an outcry from the public who are just yeah. shocked. And the Times, the New York Times itself tweeted out the story to its 49 million followers. That's how you know impactful it was. And then we had many celebrities, many people. We had over 70 million uh, tweet, collective tweets that were, you know, reaching people. So I think this is something that people, when they go to the grocery store, are starting to think about. I think a lot of people have moved away from eating pigs and cows because of health reasons and environmental reasons, and they move to more fish and chickens. And that's fine for the environment, maybe, but it's terrible for the individual animals. And so we're asking people to also think about the individual suffering that is caused. And I think this shock that people felt exemplified this 49 million people, you know, being reached by the New York Times tweet and it being the most emailed story on Sunday and Monday of Super Bowl Sunday just shows you people do care and they are going to start thinking about it. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. It's also pretty remarkable given, I mean, our, I would say the news cycle has, you know, it, it might take a little while to stabilize and, and it's definitely gotten more manageable over the past two months, but there's still a lot going on in the, in the world. Oh, yeah. In this I country. mean, yeah. a lot of stuff. To- <laughs> it's hard. It's very hard to penetrate the media and the public sphere right now. I mean, we were we have been told if it doesn't have the word, it, I mean, this is before the election, but before if it doesn't have the word COVID or Trump in it, we don't, it doesn't have yeah, a connection to those two sure. things. We're not interested. So it's very hard over the last year to get any media attention and yet to it farmed animals yet it continued. We continued to eat yeah. a same, the same amount of animals every year. And and people are just so desensitized too. Correct. So this definitely um, seems like it really struck a nerve with, with people. Yeah. Now, is this, the, this wasn't the first time that you, your organization has worked with Christoph, right? You guys have um, worked with him in the past. Well, I have. Um, so I've worked with Christoph on two other stories at my previous role at Compassion and World Farming, both on chickens. Um, one was with Craig Watts, and this was a, the farmer that I spoke at, at the beginning mm-hmm. of this interview, and we did an expose together on Purdue. And that actually led to Purdue making some really radical changes, including now almost half of their chicken houses have windows with natural mm-hmm. light, and you know they're moving, moving the needle every year. Um, and then I also did it with two, I did an expose with Christoph and two farmers in West Virginia growing for Pilgrim's Pride. Um, so Christoph has like a very deep, deep, genuine concern uh, for our food system and the, and the treatment of chickens in particular. He's a real advocate for this. He grew up on a farm himself in Oregon and grew up with chickens and ducks and turkeys all around him. And understands deeply genuinely personally the wrong turn we have taken in our in our protein food system Mm -hmm. what are the specific action items that you've asked costco to make so we're asking them to get as close as they can to the better chicken commitment which is what 200 companies have already committed to and in fact purdue is committed to supply that to anybody who wants it and those that entails one, giving the birds more space, and that's basically a square foot per bird. Right now, they have about three quarters of a square foot. The second so is like not that's like not a, the biggest ask, right? It's that's not pretty manageable. Seems pretty manageable. It's not a lot of it's not a big ask, but yeah. it is a big cost because mm-hmm. if you think one warehouse is, let's say, r- you know, raising 
20,000 birds in a warehouse right now. And you're asking them to increase the space per bird by 25%. So you've just reduced it to only 15,000 birds in that Mm -hmm. house now. So that means each year that farm is producing 25% less. So it is an ask. The stocking density, which is the space, is an ask in that sense. So that means they have to, you know, make more money off that bird. So that's why it's, a, it's, it's re, you know, it is a big ask, but it means a lot to the animals to get that much more space. It's not a lot of space, but it's enough that they can exhibit natural behaviors. They can do a little more uh, moving around and a little less bumping into each other. Mm-hmm. Um And the second thing we're asking for uh, is a better environment for the birds. So this means uh, lighting is a big feature here. So either a certain high, higher lighting right now, they keep the lights almost always on and um, low so that the birds are never falling asleep, truly never having darkness, but um, also never getting excited because they don't want them wasting energy on doing things they just want them to eat and stay awake they just want them to fatten up that's all they want them to do and And that's the way the system works and quick quick question i don't want to just to interrupt how big um how big are these do these are these birds grown to be i think there was one stat that i found particularly shocking if you compared it to humans yeah um well do you have the article in front of you because i don't remember off the top of my head but it is very shocking they go very they go from in 40 days or so they go from the size of your fist to the size of a football and they're not and they don't even they can't lay eggs let's say or reproduce until they're five months old so you're saying you know you're getting to adult size in five weeks rather than five months it's yeah oh oh, a two-year-old it would a two-year-old baby would weigh 660 pounds that's what it was that's what it is yeah it's so so gross it's great i can't and it it has it's it's not just you know it is it's they it's like i equate it to like a pop like popcorn you have a little kernel and then they mm -hmm. blow up it's like exactly like that they just go and they just get huge but yeah the the terrible thing for the animals is the intense demand on their body to do that they have skeletal and muscular problems so they cannot walk normally and they also have underdeveloped organs that can't service that giant muscle that's being created the meat that we eat and that results in all kinds of problems like heart attacks and they have difficult they have they get very stressed through heat or they can't cope with any kind of uh, being scared or um, moving around or having to run. I happened to have a chicken who was rescued from a broiler factory farm. And, you know, she is now nine months old. She was a runt, but she cannot really, she has mobility challenges. Um, she can't, she pants a lot, but she's a very sweet, very motivated, very kind and cuddly animal, but definitely her skeletal muscular and organ development is not natural, is very problematic. So that leads me to my next thing, which is about the breed. We really want this. The primary suffering is caused by the breed that the industry chooses to use. There are other breeds to use, which would mean the birds growing differently, growing perhaps slower, but definitely with positive welfare outcomes rather than these negative ones where they have such difficulty walking. And we want the, the industry to recognize as a problem because a lot of times they'll just say, oh, it's not a problem. And we'll say, come on, you, this, is, this is the problem. The, pro- <laughs> the core problem is the breed that we're using that you've chosen 
It is a choice to use Mm -hmm. this breed and continually churn them through the system at this rapid pace just for the sake of efficiency. And that's a sentient being. You shouldn't be creating a breed like that. It should be illegal, in fact, in my mind. And one day, I believe it will be illegal to Mm -hmm. create birds like this. And we'll only be allowed to use birds that are growing at a much slower and uh, with positive, not negative welfare outcomes. Um, And the, the very last thing, so the environment is not just light, I should say, it's also enrichment. So these birds... Um, to get them to move around and, and exhibit natural behavior, they have to have things to do. So one of the things we're asking is for them to put enrichments in like straw bales that they can peck at and little barriers they can hide around so they don't fight with each other and little things for them to do because right now they just have this giant barren environment. That's their whole life. That's the only thing they ever do. And that does not motivate them to move around. And that yeah. then exasperates the genetic problems from their breed. So we want them up and around and moving so they're not so they're exercising and not in such such pain and they're developing their muscles and their bones. But of course, that would be not efficient. And we, you know, the industry generally wants them to just sit there, get fat, and then send them off to slaughter. Yeah, so, it's really it's really <laughs> awful. I mean, and you, yeah. and you and you've you know, I have seen in previous just images or videos of like, you know, just a typical farmer or contract grower walking through these grow houses, and it's like I mean, you can't see the floor because it's just oh, yeah. literally wall-to-wall chicken. Wall to so wall. it's like a, and it, so it's not like we're not. You're not asking to put in like a fancy jungle gym, you know. It's, mm-hmm. no. it's it's just to create like to be able to see the floor here and there. It seems yeah, like. yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, and the last thing we want yeah. is slaughter where the animals are not conscious when they're shackled. So right now they're fully conscious when they're shackled upside down. They then mm-hmm. are. Um, that they are then stunned, which they sometimes miss. They go across the blade and they're scalded alive. Um, And what we want is for the animals to be stunned before they're shackled, which is to go through this controlled atmosphere stunning that happens in a kind of multi-gas chamber um, situation, which sounds horrible, admittedly, but slaughtering animals is horrible. So if you accept slaughtering animals, this is the least of the horrible. Um, Mm -hmm. And it renders the animals unconscious and they never experience or, you know, they're never conscious when they're experiencing being shackled or handled. And that, that is the last thing. And to its credit, Costco has agreed to that aspect. Um, and, and many of the, much of the industry is moving in that direction. So the things we want them to do are give the birds more space, accept that there is a problem with the breed and work on that, uh, and then change the environment so that it's enriched and has better lighting. Those are the, the things we're asking. It's not, you know, we're not asking them to make them all pasturatus and free range. Well, that would be lovely um, and mm-hmm. um, would eventually be something we'd like them to do. But at this stage, we're just asking them to give them the bare minimum to raise the ceiling on the welfare potential for these animals. Okay, we're going to take a really quick commercial break to hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, we'll be discussing more solutions that the organization is working towards beyond their work with Costco. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese. Forever Cheese has been a pioneer in the specialty food industry for over 20 years. They source the most exceptional, authentic, and creative artisan cheese and accompaniments from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia. Every product they carry is thoughtfully hand-selected from their trusted producers in Europe. The standards of Forever Cheese are legendary. Many of their products, including Drunken Goat, Genuine Fulvi Pecorino Romano, Mitica Marcona Almonds, and Fig and Date Cakes 
are now integral to today's market. You can learn more about their product lineup at forevercheese.com. Forever Cheese is proud of their role as a trusted authority in the specialty cheese world. Their philosophy is to put passion behind everything they do, from finding the best products to celebrating those who make them. Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Thanks to Forever Cheese for supporting this episode. Learn more at forevercheese.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Leah Garces of Mercy for Animals. Before break, I mentioned that we were going to be talking about broader solutions the organization is pushing for. And to that end, Leah, can you tell us about the Transformation Project? Be happy to. So Transformation is a project where we're working to transition farmers from factory farming, chicken factory farming, to something else. Because it turns out these warehouses where the chickens are grown are really good for growing other things. Drying hemp, for example, growing mushrooms. And as I said at the beginning, a lot of these farmers are not doing chicken factory farming because they, you know, have this big vision and dream to slaughter animals or, you know, walk through a factory farm. They're doing it because the real reason is they wanted to stay on the land and live on land sometimes that's been passed down through generations, raise their kids there. So we're trying to offer some kind of alternative to meet them where they're at. And Uh, But it's a bigger vision, honestly. It's a vision in which we're trying to increase support and investment of transitioning, of speeding up the transition of our food system away from this system. So it's also been really important to a tool to engage uh, legislators and, and, and government folks to say, we're not just coming in here and saying, ban this, ban that. We're saying, work with us to build something better. Put money and invest in something better. So this is, it's kind of a, 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 a good example for legislators to figure out a way, a pathway to get away from only fund. Our government funds a lot of factory farming through subsidies Mm -hmm. right now. So we're trying to shift some of the investment and money away from that and towards something better. Yeah. Cause that was, I mean, that's my primary question. Like a lot of farmers don't want to necessarily be locked into, like you said, you know, their, their current system, but they have um, no, financial backing to make any of these changes. I mean, like like farmers are operating on a right razor thin margins as it is. Right. So does most of this funding have, so my question was like, how are you going, how are you supporting this work? And it sounds like a lot through lobbying and. Yeah. um, I mean, the big question for me when I was thinking through this project is, you know, thinking about what does a tipping point look like for this project? The tipping point is when farmers are in mass, you know, changing and switching to away from factory farming to something better. And the, what is stopping them from doing that right now? Because so many of the farmers we talked to said if they had another option, they'd take it. Yeah. The thing that's stopping them is the mass debt they're in. Chicken factory yeah. farmers, in fact, owe collectively in our country $5 billion. And wow. that's what's stopping them. It's a sheer barrier financially. <laughs> it's a lot and of money. It's a lot of money. So yeah. the only way that's going to happen is through a collective government effort. There's no individual, you know, donation that is going to solve $5 billion. We need government intervention because it's government that got us into this by allowing these loans, by creating subsidies, by allowing these companies to create a system like this. So we need government to intervene and either, you know, through uh, debt relief. So Cory Booker, for example, and it was supported by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, Um, the Farm Systems Reform Act. And in there is a critical piece, which 
is giving debt relief to farmers who want to transition. So they would, you know, like how students get debt relief or, you know, you get relief from your, your loans. This would be very similar where there would be an, an amount of government money to allow farmers to have debt relief and transition away from factory farming. That's the kind of in- intervention we need to really solve this problem. Yeah. Wow. So what is, what about your work with the plant-based protein sector? Um, how are you, are, are you working at all with any of these kind of trade associations or individual um, companies or startups? Not in a collective, not in a, not to do with transformation. There's a lot of interest, uh, but right now we found success with hemp and mushrooms and not with the proteins. So it seems uh, those sources are coming from elsewhere right now, like pea protein or other sources. But I think that will come. You know, I think those those companies are very interested, and we certainly have talked to them, and they have a vision of that being, you know, a part of their process eventually. But at this stage, we're focused. We're kind of being led by the farmers, like what's going to work for them. What, right? Yeah. What you know? What do they think they can do? What works economically? Where's their market? And they're immediately find like hemp is a really big one. CBD oil, um, smokable bud, but also like pet CBD oil, but also textiles like plastics. Like mm-hmm. hemp is a growing hemp industry. is amazing. Yeah, yeah. it's it really like cool. It's plant. really really yeah. cool, and it's exciting. And I actually got to participate in the harvesting of a hemp from one of the farms that we transitioned, and it was so wonderful. Yeah, we pulled up the hemp, and we we hung it in the old warehouses where chickens once grew, and it was euphoric. Honestly, just get <laughs> rolling up your sleeves, getting dirty, and pulling up you know hemp plants and hanging them in an old chicken barn. It felt euphoric. Yeah, and not getting any crazy uh, diseases after. No, leaving. no. In the fact, farm. I felt pretty it's good amazing. after breathing yeah. in all that hemp. It was amazing. the hemp oil that I absorbed was pretty ah. relaxing, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am interested in mycelium-based protein oh. companies, actually, specifically. That's kind of why mm-hmm. why I asked. Um, um, so something that I'm going to be exploring a little bit further down the line, but, um, so totally. What, yeah. What I, in fact, head. we were talking to on mycelium, like, uh, like there's protein powders and all kinds of powders that are being created, um, that are very popular in like the bodybuilding world right now, mm-hmm. because it's a very mm-hmm. pure protein. Um, and that's, it's so interesting because mycelium almost takes, mycelium is for, you know, the kind of, pr- it's this almost a split the, the spore that comes out, I guess. And then there's the actual mushroom and then the mushroom, you know, the mushroom is like the flower, if you will. Mm-hmm. And the mycelium is pretty cost effective to grow. So yeah, um, it's a really, I totally agree. I think there's a huge um, opportunity there around pro- is very high in protein um, and very, there's some types that are really good for your brain and kind of neurogenerative regenerative properties. So it's really exciting. Uh, one other thing in terms of like solutions that you actually had on your website that I wanted to talk about is um, the institutional food space. Mm-hmm. So you, your website states that, um, 308,567 animals potentially spared through institutional food policies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, th- I think this is like a huge, often overlooked lever to making major, major systematic changes um, to the way that we produce and consume food in our country. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you have done or that you are planning on doing with this particular sector? 
Yeah, I am super excited to talk about this. So, you know, one I love of the, institutional food. I, I don't know if okay. you're going to like, it's kind of wonky, but I'm like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we think one of the most effective ways to enact change globally is through institutions. So if you think if you change like an individual, it's very hard to track them. So if you make an individual eat, you know, vegan once a week or something, and then you lose track of that individual, you have no idea what happened. You put in all those resources. But if you change a company, and let's say, um, or even a, a school system, for example, which is where we've had a lot of traction, then they're taking animals off the plate that day. Let's say they go meatless Monday. And then you can calculate how many animals went in and now how many animals used to go in and then with this policy now are not on the plate. Um, and that's really exciting. And we've had a lot of success. And, and surprisingly, you know, the places we're having the most success are places like Mexico and Brazil. Mm. Um, you know, that that is... You know, I, I'm really excited with our Mexico team um, who are really moving the needle on getting animals not only um, out of cages, but off of plates. So after a conversation with us, um, there's a, a very popular hotel called um, National Beach Club that decided not only to go cage free, um, but also they committed to always having vegan options on their menu. And you can, and we can track with these companies, like how many people are choosing this. Um, and there are hotel chains that are now adding this, uh, you know, for example, Four Seasons has um, one of their top chefs, uh, Leslie Dorso, is creating vegan options throughout their menus, um, has had some of those menu items be the most popular that are on there. I think the world is really shifting and by providing the options, promoting the options, and in some cases, just removing the animal options is really proving a very successful way of institutional widespread change that we can calculate very clearly how many animals are off of the plate, how many are being spared from the system. Oh, that's awesome. All right. Okay. So we are going to um, wrap it up, but any, anything on the horizon that you kind of can want to, want to draw our attention to? So then, many things and, and, on the horizon. Yes, so many things. And then where, where can our listeners go to like learn more about your work? Mercyforanimals.org. Go check it out because we have tons of stuff coming. Um, we have some fun, exciting Earth Day things coming up. So definitely yeah. watch that space around Earth Day. Absolutely. Okay, great. Well, um, uh, Leah, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. This was, this was a, a real pleasure to have the opportunity <laughs> to learn more about the work that you're doing. I'm very impressed. Well, thank you for having me, Jenna. It was super fun to talk to you. And I can't wait to hear about your mycelium podcast. I'm definitely going to tune in for that. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there for today. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors. Our show intern is Amber Chung. Jeet Paul is our engineer. And music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. I'm Jenna Liute, and thanks for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.